This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Bernadine Evaristo, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You became an overnight success after 40 years of working in the performing arts when you won the Booker in 2019. <laughs> And you write about it in your new book, Manifesto, which is subtitled On Never Giving Up. It's just out now from Grove Atlantic. Can we just start there? Can we start with the overnight success piece after 40 years of working in the theater and writing novels? Manifesto is your ninth book? Uh, yes, my ninth book. Yeah, it, you know, time is funny, isn't it? Because when you're living through your life, you're not really, well, I'm not really counting the years. But when I'm looking back on my life and talking about my life and in this book, writing about my life, then I am going back to 1959 when I was born. And I always feel I should have been born in the 60s because I was born like five months, no, um, seven months before the end of the 50s. So I'm not really a 50s person, I'm a 60s person. So going back 62 years of my life is really fascinating, actually. And then to win this huge prize, as you say, after 40 years working professionally in the arts, writing lots of books, always wanting to be in the centre, but never being in the centre and working through that and writing the kind of books that I want to write, which is what I've always done. I haven't compromised. There have been times in my life when I've wanted to be more conventional as a writer simply because I thought that was the way to do things and to be successful. But ultimately, that's not what I've done. I've always been very different, very experimental. And then, you know, winning the Booker Prize with Girl, Woman, Other, which is a radical, experimental novel about the plurality of Black British womanhood. And there's one, one non-binary character. And, you know, it's very queer inclusive and it looks at class and all these other things. And then for my career to be completely and utterly revolutionized as a result of that. One day I'll sit down, maybe in 10 years time and think, wow, wow, that really happened. But I've been riding the wave ever since. So I haven't really, I haven't really had time not to seriously reflect. But you're also the first Black woman and the first Black British person to yes. have won the Booker Prize in its 51-year history. Yes, it's shocking, isn't it? And, you know, there are always writers who could have won that prize. Why not any of my earlier books, for example? <laughs> no, but seriously, there are always writers who could have won that prize. And for whatever reason, they didn't. And then, you know, under sort of new management um, in the last few years and people thinking a bit more carefully, perhaps, about the kind of people they're getting to judge the prize. And then things start to shift because also for a long time, Ben Ockrey was the only Black person to have won that prize in its history. And he won the prize, I think, 1990 with The Famished Road. And then it wasn't until, was it 2015, when Marlon James won it? And then Paul Beatty, and then me. So it says a lot about the culture, the literary culture, perhaps over in the UK more, more than in America, that these things don't happen for us and that they also go unnoticed. Nobody was shouting from the rooftops, look, what's going on here? Why aren't Black British people or Black women winning this prize? It was just kind of accepted that we wouldn't be part of it. And that's so interesting. I don't know if you know this, but it was just announced under two weeks ago that I'm going to be the first president of the Royal Society of Literature and just talking about years. So I'll be the first person of colour to be president of the Royal Society of Literature in 201 years. <laughs> 
the 19th president and only the second woman. And here's the thing, right? I am also the first president not to have gone to Oxford, Cambridge or Eton. Isn't that interesting? Says so much about Britain right now. But I'm delighted for you, and I'm delighted for the literary culture in the UK. I think that's marvellous what can happen. And also, just to say about the Royal Society of Literature, because it may sound that it's because of that, because it's a very kind of fusty, old-fashioned organisation, but it's not. And I wouldn't have become president if it was. It, especially in the last five or six years, it's really progressive, inclusive, really working hard to make sure that they're representing writers from every community and for every community. Which is not the England you grew up in. Your dad was a Nigerian immigrant. Your mother is English by birth. You're one of eight. But British history leaves out a lot of the Black British experience, the Caribbean experience, the African experience. And you have very specifically said from very early on that writing about the African diaspora is a huge piece of your motivation, especially because this wasn't taught to you and you had to chase these stories. That's right. The England I grew up in was a lot less multiracial than it is today. Obviously, anybody going to any of the big cities in this country will just see people from all over the world. 300 languages spoken in London alone. You know, it's wonderful. So it's just a very diverse country in many ways, and especially the cities and, and in particular London. But go back all those years to when I was a young person, when I was a teenager, when I was a young woman, the population was growing, but I would say not yet really embedded in the society in the sense of being in politics and assuming leadership positions and just being respected. Because as, as I say in Manifesto, racism was legal until I was about 16, you know, so people didn't have recourse to the law if, if somebody was racist towards them. And the Equal Pay Act for women, I think, was about when I was about 16. So it was a very different society. And we were always fighting against the fact that in that society, you are minoritized if you are a person of color. So I grew up in Woolwich, which is now incredibly African, actually, but it wasn't as a child. And my dad was literally the only Nigerian in the village. And um, so, so we had a large family, as you said, eight children and white mother, black father. And we were the bogey family in the street as a result of that because we just stood out. And what is so interesting to me is that my Actually, my culture, the culture that I was living was actually just a British culture because I had this Nigerian father who raised all his children and my parents were together 33 years. I had this Nigerian father who didn't pass on his culture. I was living in a society where I felt it was my society. I knew no alternative. I'd never been to Nigeria and didn't know many Nigerians at all. But then when people saw me, they saw a foreigner. And that's the problem, isn't it? They look at you and they think you're not one of us. You're different to us because your skin color is different. And in my case, at that stage in my life, it really was about my skin colour, I have to say. <laughs> it's not anymore, of course not, but it was then. And you even write that your mother, in a way, was socially demoted because she'd married a Black man who was also an immigrant. But your dad was a local councillor. He ran for office and represented your little town. Your mother was also her union representative at the school where she worked. I mean, you come from a really active, engaged family. I do. And that also informs your work as well. It does. And actually writing manifesto made me think about that even more than I have done in the past, because 
growing up, my parents were activists. But when it's around you and you're a child, you don't really see it. You don't step outside of it and think, wow, this is extraordinary. And I think about my dad arriving in Britain in 1949, facing the most incredible hostility as he did as a black African man, marrying a white woman, having all that prejudice leveled against us as a family, you know, windows smashed in and the rest of it. And he then becomes a counsellor. So within, you know, how many years, 20, 25 years, he is a counsellor. So he is a, a leader in a way in the local community, helping people with their issues around their rights and their social welfare and any problems they have with the council and so on. And he's doing that. And then my mother's a school teacher and she is the trade union representative. So she's also fighting for the rights of others. And my parents would go on demonstrations. My dad went on a right to work march in about 1975. And it was about high unemployment in Britain at that time. It was a, a march, which was about the fight to work. And it took about two weeks and people marched from, I think it was Birmingham in the Midlands, a long way away from central London and arrived in London. And my dad was on that march. And he was just somebody who saw that this society was unjust and unequal. And obviously he'd experienced that firsthand. But instead of just putting his head down and thinking to himself, right, I'm just going to do my thing and I'm going to look after my family and that's it. I don't care about anybody else. He then decided to be a spokesperson for his community as a very left-wing socialist as he was. And I really admire that. And that was the culture I grew up in, in inside my family home. So we've got the way history is taught to you, the way you experience history as you're living day to day in England. We've got your parents' story. There are all of these pieces that are coming together to make Bernadine the writer. But you leave home at 18. You had started in the theater before you started writing poetry and prose. What brought you to the theater? What made you stay? I love theatre. From the age of 12, I almost by accident ended up at my local youth theatre for children and loved it. It was a bit like a community centre, I suppose, for me, in that it was somewhere where my father allowed us to go because he was very strict and was very worried about us being outside of our home, really. And I would go there and create theatre and be in plays and make friends. And that sustained me from the age of 12 to 16, 17. And then we had a great theatre teacher or drama teacher at school called Peter Cook. He came in and created a drama group. So I was then in plays at school, which I loved. And then decided I wanted to be an actor from the age of 14. I love being on stage. I love getting attention. And maybe it's a middle child syndrome. Who knows? Me and Madonna, you know, fourth child out of eight. And I love the community. I love the creativity. I love being around people who are unorthodox because I think theatre does attract often people who don't feel they fit in quite into sort of conventional society. So it was the whole thing for me. Everything around the arts and theatre was where I felt I belonged. And so I, I then go to a drama school called Rose Bruford College of Theatre and Performance, as it's called now in London, and four other black women. We're there to create our own plays. That's part of the course, a community theatre arts course, but we're also there to be actors. So we're getting trained to act, but also to be theatre makers. Lo and behold, we leave. Three of us form Theatre Black Women. And then I spend my 20s working in theatre. And we created, actually, Britain's first black women's theatre company, which lasted for six years. Actually, at that time, it felt like a really long time. I suppose when you're, you know, you're 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, you know, it's like, 
it's almost like a th- well it is like a third of your life almost you're running the theatre company and then through through actually through make creating theatre at drama school that was how I became a writer I started to write for theatre because it was expected of us okay but let's talk about the transition then from playwriting to what you call fusion fiction which is a great way to describe your work. Playwriting essentially is dialogue. Dialogue drives everything. And then you hand the stage set over to someone else and you hand sort of the directing over to someone else. But when you're the playwright, it is dialogue, 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 dialogue. Actually, it was monologue, 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 monologue. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I actually really struggled when I started writing books and fiction. Mm-hmm. I really struggled to write dialogue because I'd never written it. Because the theatre that I was creating was actually very inspired by Ntozaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, which came to London in about 1979. It was on in the West End and we went there as drama students and I absolutely bowled over by it. And I got the poetry book that came with the play and read the poems and loved it. So it was the first time I saw more than one black woman on stage and I'd hardly seen black women on stage anyway, yet I've been going to the theatre from the age of 12, 13. Black women just weren't there. They just weren't, you know, getting the parts. They weren't part of the sort of performance culture and theatre in in the UK. And so here are these seven African-American women, actors, poets, well, reading Ntozaki Shange's poetry and dancing on stage. And it was just overwhelmingly exquisite for us. And what Americans might not know is that for us in the UK, as young people looking for role models, we weren't really finding them in the UK because most of us, our parents were what we would call the first generation. So they would have come over in the probably 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s and come from the Caribbean, somewhere in the Caribbean, somewhere in Africa, generally speaking, or somewhere in Asia and so on. And they were too busy surviving in this society. But for us, people of the second generation, we had the privilege and advantage of being able to perhaps choose to go into theatre or, or, you know, some of us did at least, to have much more freedom in terms of the careers we chose for ourselves. And so when we were looking for role models, they weren't in the UK, but they were in America. And there was a lot, there was so much, what's the word? I suppose or Americans were like gods, African-Americans in particular, were like gods to us. We loved the way African-Americans spoke, the swagger, the quality of their singing and performing and everything was incredible. And actually a bit overwhelming as well for us because we were Londoners, we were British girls, right? We couldn't recite poetry like Maya Angelou. (laughs) (laughs) or like the actors in For Colour Girls. We had to then find out how we could tell our own stories and just find ourselves when we had role models who were somehow connected to us because they placed Black women in particular in the centre of their practice, but also were coming from very different cultures. When you're turning to writers like Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and Gloria Naylor and and Tazaki Shande, how are you translating what you're experiencing of their work? into a Black British woman's experience? Interesting question. It was challenging because everything about the Americans was seen so much more seductive. So the validation that we needed for ourselves 
was not to be found in our society. And even among ourselves, African-American history is very different, to, for example, to Black British history or the, the history of people of colour in Britain. Very, very, very different. There is a shared history going back in America for most people of African descent 400 years. Whereas in the UK, we were coming from 50-something African countries, 30-something Caribbean countries, lots of countries in Asia and so on. There wasn't quite the same shared history. Where we met was in how we were experiencing and being treated by the majority population in the UK. And so that's what we were exploring through our, well, certainly Theatre of Black Women in the beginning, through our theatre, and later me through my early books. It was about telling those stories that hadn't been told. And I guess the biggest inspiration for us was that the African-Americans were doing it. Bell Hooks just passed, very sad. And I think about Ain't I a Woman? And so you're a Black woman and you're you're kind of coming into your feminism, but you don't really have the language or the context for it. You just know what you believe. And then you read something like Ain't I a Woman? And suddenly there is an intellectual context for what you have to say. Somebody has done the deep thinking for you. And that was so important. Or Audrey Lord was really important to us. And, you know, she came to London, we met her and, you know, she was like a guru to us. They inspired us in different ways. And again, you don't have the representation in books. You don't have representation on the screen. You've just said you didn't have representation on the stage. I mean, if you're not seeing your story, then you have to create it. You do. You do. You're surrounded by an absence of yourself and and also a society that doesn't think that absence is a problem. And so with Theatre of Black Women, that was absolutely our remit. It was, it's very simple to tell Black women's stories, you know, and to put us in the heart of our theatre making. We work with white people and occasionally men, but essentially we were generally Black and Asian performers, but also in the UK, a lot of Asian people identified as Black. Um, I don't know if you know this, in the 70s and 80s, there was a kind of political Black term, which was very inclusive. I don't think it's quite the case now. And then we'd bring in Black theatre directors, and if we could, stage managers and set designers and photographers and choreographers. And we just used as many Black women as possible because we did not want to have to explain ourselves to people who did not understand where we were coming from. And we didn't want to have to fight for the theatre that we wanted to make. And I think actually that if I was somebody who had gone to a traditional drama school and studied on a traditional course where you just train to be an actor, you don't train to create your own theatre and you're you're basically putting on classic plays, probably a lot of Shakespeare. I would have been cast as the maid or some lowly role probably all those years ago. I don't think I would have stayed in theatre because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been equipped to tell those stories. And what the course did at Rose Bruford was to equip me to tell those stories. And this brings you to poetry. You start writing poetry after you've left home and are working in the theater. And are we talking sort of classical forms of poetry or are you just sort of experimenting with every possible form and just looking for voice and looking for tone? You were talking about free verse. Okay. Extremely free verse. Okay. <laughs> 
you know, my first career was writing for theatre, but it was always verse drama. And then my first book was a poetry collection. And then I wrote a couple of verse novels. I've never really been into traditional poetry forms. For me, it was a, initially about an emotional connection to the text and just finding a way to explore what I was feeling and the politics that I was kind of absorbing around me, especially my interest in African history, and to express it through poetry without having a lot of knowledge about form or even a lot of knowledge about poetry other than reading it. And if you think back to the 80s in the UK, there was I think at that stage, only one university offered a creative writing degree. So uh, that was the University of East Anglia. So whereas in America, I think the teaching of creative writing at universities goes back almost 100 years. In the UK, it only really started to flourish probably about 20, 25 years ago. And so there were a few courses around that you could do, like evening classes or workshop groups, but they were mainly run by white people and attended by white people. And I didn't really really feel that I belonged in those settings. I found it very off-putting and they were studying white poetry. And then I did attend a, a women of colour workshop briefly and then they became very prescriptive about what we should be writing. And so I stopped going to that. I probably went to about two sessions. Yeah, I was writing poetry because I loved it because I connected to it, but I was finding my way into it without any formal instruction. You have a great line from Manifesto where you say, poetry was the means through which I processed my new knowledge and insights that felt important to absorb my cultural awakening into my bloodstream, to metamorphose it through poetry, to create something new and thereby claim it. And I love that line, claim it. Claiming your place, yes. claiming your seat, claiming your version of events. Yes. And I was very interested in African history in my, well, I still am in my 20s because it was all new to me. We knew nothing about Africa. You know, Africa was a continent full of savages. You know, that's how people were raised in Britain when I was a child. And then I started reading about African histories and kingdoms and African queens and, and just being absolutely astounded at the rich history of this continent, which of course is obvious now, right? But back then it was all very, very new to me. And so then I would write poetry exploring this history. And it was a way for me to, yeah, to absorb it into myself and to make something new with it. Writing for me has never been just cere a cerebral activity. I do have to feel passionate about it. And that all began in those early days when I was a very young woman and I was discovering my myself as a black woman. I was, I was coming from this biracial background we used to be called half caste wasn't an insult when I was growing up and then we were mixed race and even today we're called mixed race and, and biracial and then I'm meeting all these black women at drama school and then I'm running a black women's theatre company and I'm totally immersed in this black womanist culture and making sense of it through my writing that's how I made sense of it and deepened my knowledge of who we were through my reading Fusion fiction is how you describe your work now. And anyone who's read Girl, Woman, Other has experienced it. And it's, it's amazing on the page. You chose it, you've said, because you can move from the interior to the exterior. You can flow throughout the story as quickly as you need to. But how did you get from poetry to your fusion fiction? 
So poetry for theatre. So, you know, call it quite grandly verse drama. Intozaki Shange called hers choreo poetry. And my poetry wasn't choreo poetry because it wasn't really to be danced to. But it was poetic monologues used to create theatre. And then I left theatre behind by the end of my 20s and just focused on writing poetry. And at that stage, I was exploring a lot of, you know, Black culture, society, the African diaspora history. But I was also, I think quite a restrained writer. I wasn't experimental. I'd gone from experimental theatre to writing quite conventional free verse. I guess that was just part of my process, feeling that this is what I should be doing. And then I transitioned to my verse novel, Lara, and that was a lot freer. And that is a verse novel. So it really is telling the story of a novel through this poetic form, but it spans 150 years, seven generations. It's a semi-fictionalized version of my family history. And it goes back to Brazil and Nigeria and Ireland and Germany and the UK and, and also my childhood. And all of that is in a single novel. So it's quite epic, but it's told through poetry. And then the next book was The Emperor's Babe, which again was a verse novel. And it was about a black girl growing up in Roman London nearly 2000 years ago. And so I was again telling a story and it was kind of more straightforward than Lara, but it was just in terms of the scope of the book, because it was a, a story about a single person and her journey through her life. But I'd also created this parallel universe where a lot of anachronisms in the book. So it's it's very historical, but it also feels very contemporary. So there I am. So theatre, poetry, poetry, verse, poetry, verse, poetry. Then I wrote a novel with verse. So that's what I call it, a novel with verse. So it's mixing poetry and prose and other forms together. And then so on and so on. And all of these sort of forms I arrived at in a very kind of roundabout way. I began writing Laura and it was a prose novel and it became a verse novel. I began writing some poems about a black girl in Roman London and it became a verse novel, The Empress Babe. So I was arriving at these things in a roundabout way, but also quite accidentally. Like I didn't always know where I was going to go with it. I'd write in one form and end up in the other. So eventually we get to Girl, Woman, Other and the form I use in Girl, Woman, Other, which I call fusion fiction, that was used in my previous novel, Mr. Loverman. So in Mr. Loverman, there are two narratives. There's the husband and wife. He's gay. She doesn't know it. He's 74. She's a bit younger. And I use that fusion fiction form in that book. And I love the process, but I didn't call it that. When I started writing Girl Another, I knew I wanted to continue with that form because it's almost as if the form allowed me to write with so much freedom. So that's how it emerged into this experimental fusion fiction, which hasn't taken off by the way, but you know, I don't mind. <laughs> It sounds like the form shifts to serve the story. Are you starting with an idea? Are you starting with characters? It changes with each book. Lara, the book about my family history, that initially was about my parents' marriage in the 50s. I wanted to write about a mixed racial marriage in the 50s. And then it became this huge epic about my whole family history, you know, going deep into my ancestry, a couple of hundred years. And then with The Emperor's Babe, like I said, it was just going to be a few poems, but it ended up being this whole story about this character. But what I wanted to explore was the Black presence in Roman London or Roman Britain. That was the starting point. So it was an idea, a concept. Blonde Roots, which was published in 2008, I wanted to explore the transatlantic slave trade, but do it, do it in a different way. So I created a world where Africans enslaved Europeans. But the starting point was the transatlantic slave trade. I want to write about this huge global history 
that certainly involved my family and, and has involved many, many generations of people in this world. And as a writer, I think it's really interesting to explore it, but how do I do it differently? So then I found a way to do it differently. And then the characters came through. Doris is the main character. Mr. Loverman, it began with a character. It began through an exercise that I did. And this man emerged who became Barrington Walker, this gay 74 Caribbean London man at the end of his marriage. And then with Go Woman Other, it was the idea of as many Black women as possible that I can put into a single novel as co-protagonists. That was the idea. So it's a mixture. But yeah, I think I probably tend towards having the ideas and then thinking, how am I going to materialize this? One of the things you talk about in Manifesto too is that you ditched the entire first draft of Lara. You literally threw it out yeah. and started over. Yeah. And then you follow that with problem solving is integral <laughs> to the creative process, which, you know, I think for some folks that is going to take a little bit of the shine off of the creative process. But in this book, there, you talk a lot about the mechanics and the heavy lifting and the things that you need to do to sustain the work. Yeah. And we're all different as well. I do know writers who write practically a novel a year and they seem to write those novels in a few months and I hate them. They're not bad novels either. I can take up to five years, go with another almost six years, right? That's a hell of a long time. I think my process is very interesting because it's never easy. Occasionally it is. It doesn't mean to say that I don't enjoy it because I like the challenge of it. And I, if I'm really into a novel that I'm writing, then it's incredibly satisfying and I can be bereft at the end of it. But there are so many moving parts to a novel. And because I always want to do something different anyway, but not for the sake of it, it can be just very challenging to make it work. And so in, in Manifesto, I do talk about those challenges. And I was very aware when I was writing that people will be inspired by it. People who are struggling out there and have been working on this novel for 10 years, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, maybe I should continue with it because maybe it'll come all right in the end, you know? I think people who don't know me and who have perhaps only encountered me through Girl, Woman, Other, they won't know what it took to get here. And by the end of the book, they'll know what it took to get here. Which we're trying to do in this conversation as well, though, and give people an idea of the background that got you to the art and how the art evolved. Yes. And how we got here to overnight success 40 years into the business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am going to go back to your process for a second. So we've talked about problem solving, but what do you think is the most important thing for someone who is in the thick of the process? Like what's something you would tell a writer who's starting out, who's starting to maybe lose a little faith <laughs> in what's happening? I think it's really important to get good feedback. You know, when I say good feedback, I mean constructive feedback, especially if you've had your head down and you've been working on something for a very long time and you don't know where you are with it. I mean, people do spend 10 or 20 years on something and then it's never published or it's published and it's clearly overworked. So I think find some form of constructive feedback. And certainly in the UK, we have one particular organisation called the Literary Consultancy. So that's one thing. So Second thing is make sure that you're really writing the story that you believe in because you need the stamina to see it through from beginning to end. And if you don't really believe in it, if you're writing something because you think it's going to make money or because there's a market out there for it or because you're trying to impress somebody, have another think about that because I think you need to really believe, really feel passionate about the story that you want to tell. Never give up. <laughs> you know, if you're beset by negative thinking, it's a sort of cultural disease in the UK, go and pick up some self-help 
books or videos or tapes to G you up and to keep you going with it. You know, because often it's the negative self-talk that's in our heads that just destroys our creativity and stops us writing sometimes and disrupts our confidence and the rest of it. So go and get some help from people who have made a career out of helping other people to believe in themselves and to do the things that they feel really passionately about in spite of whatever obstacles are thrown at them. You also talk about how once you put your book out into the world, you kind of have to let it go. You can't control how people respond. You can set it up and you can help they respond in the ways that you would like them to. But ultimately, it's a little out of your hands. This is a really interesting way that you phrase it. How you respond to your book being out in the world means your career could go one way (laughs) or another. (laughs) Well, this is the thing about being an overnight success after 40 years, right? You've seen a lot. You've witnessed a lot. You've experienced a lot. And I think it's really important for writers to work on their relationship with their books once those books are published. So yes, you may be celebrated with your first book, you know, perhaps if you're lucky, but you know, sometimes that isn't the best thing that can happen to you. Surely the goal is is to sustain a lifelong career. So it's about not being too swayed by any adulation that comes your way and always to remember why you're writing. If you're writing, like I said earlier, for adulation, then there is going to come a point where that's not going to be there. Even, I mean, perhaps it's never there at all. Then where are you with your sense of yourself as a writer. And then it's when books don't get the kind of critical acclaim that we all want. We all want critical acclaim. We all want everybody to say, oh my God, this person's genius. And when that doesn't happen, perhaps ever in your career, but you've still got a career, for example, then how do you deal with that? And certainly not staying grounded it's a recipe for disaster, really. Staying true to what you believe in as a writer, to why you write, that's the most important thing. I've seen a lot of people get very swayed by a lot of attention that's been thrust at them when they're very young. And sometimes they never write another book or it doesn't happen with the second book and then they're lost. Whereas I think in my case, it was a slow build. There was never a time when I would even be justified in thinking I was the bee's knees. Do you know what I mean? And at the stage at which, you know, I win the booker, I'm so grounded. I'm just enjoying it. But I understand the context of how careers operate in this society. I see it. You might be popular today and then, you know, 10 years time, maybe nobody remembers your name. I don't know. Well, you also came up early in your career pre-internet, and I think that changes things for a lot of writers. And you have a very charming line in Manifesto about how boredom actually helped fuel your creativity, that you were bored a lot as a kid and you read and your mother encouraged this quite a lot. And that's part of what set you on your path. And I think you know, it's so easy. I have friends who are writers and they're like, well, I have to put this thing on my laptop so I don't have access to the internet. And I understand completely. It's very easy. I mean, we walk around with supercomputers in our pockets now. How do you make sure that you have time for the quiet and the time for the bits where you're not online, out in the world, taking input from everywhere and everyone? And we all know people say stupid stuff on the internet all the time. (laughs) And they get really caught up in who they are on the internet all the time. So how do you separate and protect your time 
I think it's a struggle. So even though the internet really took off, I suppose, with social media, when was that? About 15 years ago or something? And I was already of a certain age when that happened. It's very easy to get sucked into it. And it's very tempting, obviously, to go online a lot when you're sitting in front of your computer. So I think I'm probably pretty addicted to the internet and to, to Googling things and, and you know seeing what's going on in social media and so on. It's a struggle to reclaim that lovely quiet time that I had for a few decades, actually, when the phone might ring occasionally to disturb you. But other than that, especially when I was living on my own, it was so peaceful. You know, the post would come through the letterbox maybe twice a day. And there may actually be personal letters from people, which you'd read properly at leisure rather than scanning quickly. And it was so peaceful. It was so peaceful. I did a residency at Hedgebrook, I think it was four years ago. And I was only there for two weeks. And there you have limited internet access there. Oh, my God. I went deep into my writing and reading. I really did. And I was like, oh, this is what I've missed for so long. And the clarity of my thinking was astonishing to me because I could think clearly because I wasn't jumping from one thing to the other thing to the other thing. And this is me, somebody who is not on it in the way, as you say, some people never are never off it, but also I've had a lot of my life without it. And yet it's a problem for me. And I dream about putting a backpack on at the moment and going off backpacking like an 18 year old from 1978. No phone, <laughs> no internet. And just out there experiencing the world, which is how I used to travel. I loved it rather than here I am, here I am at the airport and, you know, oh, just landed. You know, all of the constant commentary that's part of our lives now. And Instagram, what I find really interesting about writers now is that it seems that they're developing their careers on Instagram, photographs of themselves on Instagram, pouting. It's very interesting. What's next for you besides a backpack or dreams of a backpack, I should say? It's a secret theatre project in the pipeline. So I actually think probably the next thing will be a theatre thing. And then the next thing after that will be another novel. And I really, really, really miss writing fiction. I haven't written fiction for two years. I've never gone that long without it and I miss it. So what do you want readers to know about Manifesto? I want them to know that it's a memoir. I call it a memoir and a meditation because I always like to do things differently. And about a, a Black British woman of dual heritage. And it's about my creativity and how my life has been shaped by my creativity. I want people to know more about me, people who are interested in my work. But I also hope it inspires people and also perhaps illuminates certain things for people who don't understand who people like me are and where we come from and what we're thinking and what our life is experiences are. There are very, very few memoirs by Black British people out there in the world. I mean, I kid you not, are there even 10? <laughs> I don't know. So it's a very, very rare thing. And so that's a reason to buy it. <laughs> It's also just really fun and very witty and very entertaining. There's a lot in here. There's a lot. Bernadine Evaristo, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Manifesto is out now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.